Season two of the All at Once podcast is presented by Alan and Beth Stanfield of Stanfield Properties, proud sponsors since the podcast's beginning. Contact Alan and Beth Stanfield for all your realty needs. They're the actual best in every way. The damage that can be done and that I think we need to correct is that we have to be careful that we're not always painting the female characters in such a way where it was like, look at this weak woman, this daughter of Eve. Let's lay all the blame for everything that's wrong on this person because it shapes how we think. While the world keeps on revealing itself for what it is. This is the All at Once podcast. For women and those who love them, I'm Kelly Browning. And I'm Sarah McDuffie. We are God's image bearers, exploring ways religion has been distorted to silence the marginalized and to justify abuse. We are Christians seeking to comfort, heal, and free people from the pain caused by our own religion. We carry much, like all of humanity, all at once. To God be the glory. We want you to know that our show is not for little ears. Also, the content we cover may be triggering for those who have experienced trauma. The people we interview present ideas that we align with, and they also present ideas that make us uncomfortable. I invite you to join us in this discomfort as our views, opinions, and experiences are challenged. So, take what is good and beneficial for you and leave what isn't. Here we go. Wendy Scott, one of my first Bible teachers in this area, one of my first friends who alongside her husband actually mentored my husband when he was a high school student. Wendy, she is a community leader, a preacher, and an iconic balancer of love, sarcasm, and wit. Welcome to the All at Once podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Gosh, that is that's a great introduction. I am um, <laughs> the sarcasm. Oh my goodness, that's my primary language. So thank you for knowing me so well. <laughs> yes, uh, if you encounter Wendy on the street, odds are she'll have a quick witted <laughs> comment for you. In love, quick. In love. love, that's right. Yes. That's right. Wendy, you recently gave a sermon at your church, which I was so excited to attend and hear you teach and preach. And this sermon was centered on the account of the woman at the well in John 4. Your words made me weep, which I'm learning happens almost any time a woman preaches. (laughs) I weep. I immediately knew that you had to come here and share that same message for our listeners, because especially looking back at earlier episodes in this season, Mary DeMuth actually talked about the same encounter with Jesus. So I'm just wondering we need to dive in deeper into that. And Wendy, could you tell us what are some common teachings and assumptions that we hear about this encounter that Jesus had with the woman at the well? That sermon was in a series where we were just looking at different individuals in the Bible to see how they experienced Jesus, because how they experienced Jesus teaches us how we can experience him too. It makes him uh, become alive to us. We understand his nature and his character. I felt like it was really important for us to look at the woman at the well because of the fact that oftentimes that particular story gets a lifted out of context and and so interpreted out of context actually the way it gets interpreted helps us focus on the woman and not on Jesus and so probably most people have heard 
the story or or at least a little bit they kind of know the reference to the woman at the well where Jesus meets this woman and she's a Samaritan he has a conversation with her and the passage often gets taught in light of scandal mm. So that's sort of the overarching theme of the whole thing. It's scandalous that Jesus is talking to this woman alone and she's a Samaritan. But then the other thing that we often hear is that this is a scandalous woman. So she's a woman who has a string of marriages and is is living in an illicit relationship at the moment. In light of that, because the passage often gets interpreted that way and taught that way, the lesson that's often drawn from that message is, but look, Jesus will forgive anybody. It doesn't matter how how uh, deep or dark your sin is. And, and all of that is true. There's, there's truth to how Jesus interacts with us and how he forgives us and, and that there's no one too far gone, right? It, all of that is true, except I just don't think it's true about this story. Mm. And so oftentimes it's just, it's just laced with, with scandal. And the difficult part of that is that what that does is it shapes our brains or or it you know it causes us to be on the lookout for the scandalous woman um which impacts the rest of the way we look at scripture so you provided context to that story that really dramatically changed it changes the lens for interpretation of the entire story can you kind of walk us through the context that helps to interpret the story Yeah, so the context for interpreting the story is actually where the story is situated in the scriptures. As I mentioned, we have often heard that story taught, but we very rarely hear the story taught as part of the book of John. And so we never look at what is John, the author of this book, doing with this story? And why did he place it where it's placed? What happened before this that drives how we're supposed to understand this story now? What specific features in this particular story alert us to other information that we're supposed to be thinking of or or that the author thinks that we would already understand? So for example, I'll give a couple of examples that I use as lens for interpretation. So, and actually, you know what? This is reminding me right now as we're talking about interpreting. Uh, so often we're talking about interpreting the scriptures, and it feels like a lot of times women have been on the losing end of scriptural interpretation. And I think that you probably had an episode in season one about scriptural interpretation. I would commend your listeners to go back and listen to the that episode. It was really, it was really great for helping everyone understand how to read their Bibles. But so let me tell you how that applies in this particular context. So for example, this story occurs in John chapter four. Now it's not the first story that happens in the book of John. And so because it's not the first story, we have to go back and look at other things that happen prior to this to see what is it that I'm supposed to, what questions should I be asking when I get here? So giving context for John chapter four, we have to look back at what happened before that. And in John chapter one, it says this about Jesus. It says in verse 11, the light came into his own people and his own people didn't welcome him. But those who did welcome him to those who believed in his name, he authorized to become God's children, born not from blood, nor from human desire or passion, but born from God. So that's a that's setting a context. I mean, that's the introduction of the book, and it's setting the context. So now we're going to be looking for places where God's own did not receive him, and to those who were born of the Spirit, he gave the right to become children of God. 
So that's setting the context for us. So we're looking for those, we're looking for those differences. And then later in chapter one, remember how Nathaniel, when Jesus is calling his disciples, we have this a disciple, Nathaniel, who was called. And if you remember, he um his brother Philip comes to get him and he says, Hey, listen, I think we found the Christ. Come and see. And he goes, What? He's like, Yeah, Jesus from Nazareth. Nathaniel, if you remember, he goes, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so he goes and he meets Jesus. And Jesus says to him, I saw you under the tree. Now, well, we don't know what that means, right? But Nathaniel knows what it means. And that for Nathaniel, he goes, oh my gosh, you've got to be him because you knew something about me that nobody else knew, right? We have this idea, and this is this actually is pervasive in the whole entire book. It's this, this whole understanding of confusion, misunderstanding, and then revelation. And so if you, un, if you know the story of the woman at the well, you know that that actually plays out in her story too. The point in Nathaniel's story is not that there was anything scandalous or illicit about his life that Jesus knew that he was drawing shame or that he was alerting people to the shame of that story. But the point was Jesus revealing himself to Nathaniel. It was opening Nathaniel's eyes. John chapter three, Jesus has a really interesting interaction with a man named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is a Jew to whom Jesus came. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He's asking these how questions. Tell me more. Tell me more. And I actually, before before I preached this sermon about the woman at the well, I preached about Nicodemus. And I even think he gets oftentimes the raw end of the deal whenever he gets interpreted. I don't think he was coming to trap Jesus. I really do think he was coming curious. But but he comes curious and then you know what happens in that story? No one knows, right? There's no resolution to Nicodemus's character. Mm-hmm. He kind of stays stagnant through the whole book. We don't know what he does with Jesus. We don't know if he receives him or if he rejects him or if he's just kind of like wavering back and forth. And so in John chapter three, it just leaves us hanging. We don't know. And then there's a little interlude in the next story is the woman at the well. And so Jesus went to the people of God, the Israelites first to his own people, and they did not receive him. And so what does he do? He finds a woman in Samaria that you just like, they don't get lower than this. Mm-hmm. They don't get, yeah. they don't get uh, more scandalous uh, than, than this particular interaction. And so actually that's the lens that I use whenever I'm interpreting. So I don't really ever want to come to a passage and and especially a passage like this where it has sort of a negativity bias or has a potential for a negativity bias i don't ever want to come to a passage like this without reading what came before this is just for free but even if the story that you're interpreting comes at the very end of the book man you better read that whole entire book before you get to that story because there's so much good stuff leading up to that and it really makes interpreting the passage so much easier on you you're not grasping and asking all the wrong questions. And so that leads me to this. So when you get to the story of the woman at the well and you lift it out of context, here's what happens. Oftentimes we get to that story and what's the first question that people ask? They ask, why was she there alone in the middle of the day? Right? That's a wrong question. 
Why? Because the story gives us that answer as to why it mentions this detail. It's not about the woman. It's about Jesus. It gives context why Jesus is tired and thirsty and hungry and why his disciples went in to get food. It gives us context for why Jesus is there alone in the middle of the day, not why the woman is there in the middle of the day. The other question that we have to answer is the very first thing that it says is Jesus was traveling through Samaria and he gets to this place to car and he comes to Jacob's well. Well, that's the context of the story. And so an astute reader goes, why is it telling us about Jacob's well? Man, there's a lot there, right? It gives you the focus for what, for what questions you need to be asking. So John is assuming that we know about Jacob's well. Well, if you don't know about Jacob's well, you need to go find out. And then it says he meets a woman at a well. Man, that should be, that should alert you to the, how much is packed into this story. Because if you know anything about the Old Testament at all, you know that there were women at wells. It's like, it's, it could be a book in itself, right? About, about how the, the kinds of interactions that women, the kinds of interactions that women had at wells. And so those are the actual important questions that we start asking. And so the, uh, your original questions there, I think was just about the lens of interpretation. And so those are the lenses that I'm using when I'm interpreting the scriptures. And I always really want to come with fresh eyes. I mean, isn't that how we want to interpret? Like, I want to come to the scriptures every day with fresh eyes. In fact, the first thing I pray every day whenever whenever I read is, help me read this freshly. Let this be, let, I don't want stale bread. Help me read this like with fresh eyes and see something that I haven't seen before. Even leading up to that sermon, part of what, part of what made me know that I was going to preach that particular passage is because I had read it with fresh eyes and there's something that popped out in that passage to me that had never popped out to me before. And I just knew in my spirit, I had to, I had, this was a message that I needed to preach. I love that you talked about looking at scripture with fresh eyes and, and coming at it, knowing that there's a potential for negative bias because Mm. there are dangerous consequences when we look at scripture with what we know already Mm. or, or with, what we've been taught already. Yeah. There can be some, some dangerous consequences of that, which is what we talk about on the podcast. And I'm glad that you said that because that's what I want to talk with you more about is what are some of those consequences? I, I know I've heard this story interpreted that the woman has had a rough past Jesus telling her he knew about all of her shameful life choices. And so he extended her grace despite her life choices, which we see that blame being put on the woman for her choices Mm -hmm. and blame shame being heaped Mm -hmm. upon her for her choices. Mm -hmm. And you talked a lot about that. Like, what does that tell us about Christian culture? These assumptions that we make about the woman, what does that tell us about our, our lens that we sometimes bring with us to scripture? Yeah. There's a lot that you just talked about. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, you know, the beauty of narrative, um, and which, you know, this, this particular passage is, is narrative. It's telling a story. The beauty of narrative is that it can mean many things to different people who are reading it. And so it depends on your orientation and your context when you come to the passage, 
hermeneutics is like how I'm interpreting this. And we all want to be like part of, part of what's hard about hermeneutics and interpreting the scriptures is we're supposed to interpret the scriptures. It's our, it's our job. Um, and it's our delight, right? But, but part of interpreting the scriptures has a lot to do with our own context. And if we're not aware of our context, when we come to a passage, we might not be aware of our own negativity bias. And, and so maybe we need to talk about actually what a negative negativity bias is. It's just that we're wired on, honestly, we're wired towards negative things, which is honestly, I sometimes think, well, I'm such a positive, optimistic person. Honestly, when it comes right down to it, I'm trained to see the negative. And so if I'm not aware that I have a negativity bias, when I come to the scriptures, then I might not interpret them. And here's the word I want to, I want to be right when I interpret the scriptures, but that's not always possible. So instead, when I interpret the scriptures, what I really want to be is faithful. So if I come to the scriptures and I say, I want to interpret this faithfully, what that means is I want to come to the Bible with a way of interpreting the scriptures that allow my interpretation to integrate into the whole. Like, can this all make sense together? I'm just going to be really honest with you. After I preached that sermon, I had some, I had some pushback, all really gentle and kind and conversational, exactly the kind of conversation that you want to have with anybody after you preach. But, you know, I had one woman say to me, you know, teach, hearing that story taught where the woman was a woman who was living a shameful life actually was important for me because I was living a shameful life and it helped me see that Jesus could rescue even me. And so I praise God for that. But the damage that can be done and that I think we need to correct is that we have to be careful that we're not always painting the female characters in such a way where it was like, look at this weak woman, this daughter of Eve, let's lay all the blame for everything that's wrong on this person because it shapes how we think. You know, this is sort of unrelated. You know, there's this whole idea of brain priming, which is, which is a way of, I I think, you know, like I, I don't, brain scientists, whatever. I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't know anything about, about what I'm about to talk about. So there's the caveat, but there's this whole idea about brain priming. And uh, I know that like Malcolm Gladwell talked about it in his book, Blink, which is, I don't know, over a decade old, but what the idea of that is, is that you can prime your brain to see certain things. So for example, let's talk about that in terms of race, for example. So if I, as a white middle-class woman, look at, for example, a picture of a black male's face, and then look at uh, a picture of, let's say, I don't know, like a Harvard degree, or what that primes my brain to do is to associate those two things together. So this black male is highly educated, or I could prime my brain by looking at you know, a black male's face and a a weapon, a gun, right? So what am I priming my brain to look for? What am I priming my brain to think about, right? So I can prime my brain to think about women in a positive light. 
And so when I come to the scriptures, what am I most likely to see? Am I most likely to see a woman who's having a theological conversation with with God? Or am I seeing a woman who had this really made really terrible life choices and she is really has really loose morals and has made all of the wrong choices and it's all on her and but Jesus still forgives her anyway. So I can prime my brain to see different things in the scriptures. And so we do have a negativity bias and being aware of our negativity bias and finding ways to correct it helps us see what we usually don't see when we're reading the Bible. So what I'm hearing you say, Wendy, is that we have primed our brain to associate negativity toward the woman at the well. So, and really anytime we encounter scripture, we have absorbed our culture Mm -hmm. that says women are to blame for their choices Mm -hmm. and women are shameful in their choices, which is that masculinity and femininity that we, that I see a lot of times with my boys, like boys are excused for being dominant and masculine Mm. and little girls are shamed for Mm. being dominant or masculine. And so when we, we're all products of our culture. And so we're absorbing our culture and we bring that with us to the scripture. We're going to apply that here and say, this woman is wrong Mm -hmm. and has made wrong decisions because we primed our brain. What that tells us is that Christianity is supposed to be countercultural. Yeah. Jesus is countercultural. And so when we acknowledge that we're bringing this with us to the scripture, we have to say, well, what would Jesus do? How would this be turned on its head? Yeah. And, and look at it with fresh eyes instead of, and kind of checking our culture at the door. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you guys a question just in terms of the traditional way that this passage in particular has been interpreted, because I think one of your questions earlier was what's the negative impact or how is it, how has that traditional, how could that traditional interpretation negatively impact others? Do you feel like you have been negatively impacted by that particular interpretation? Either of you? That story in combination with many other passages of scripture in in which the meaning or the interpretation has been presented in such a way that blames women for their situations in which they may have had very few choices or very little power. Mm-hmm. And so I think what I noticed the most in this particular story is that we're given this woman's situation that she's in. We're given her history in a factual sense, but we're not told what choices she got to make or what power she had over her life situation. And I think it's very interesting that the assumption that I have always heard is that it was her fault that she was in this situation and there was something wrong with her and she had made bad choices when it's very likely she was a victim in this situation mm-hmm. of a, like maybe a string of bad things happening to her that she had very little control over. And we just don't tend to consider that. Yeah. Um, and it, and a danger that comes from that is someone like Sarah in my, my background. So I've been sexually assaulted. I was sexually assaulted as a child and I grew up thinking that something was wrong with me mm-hmm. or those decisions. And, but Jesus still loves me. Mm-hmm. And I thought well, it took me, you know, 26 years to realize what happened to me was sexual assault, mm-hmm. and not something that I should be ashamed over or something that I was a willing participant in, but mm-hmm. something that happened to me. Mm-hmm. And I love, I think why I cried in your sermon was 
thinking about Jesus encountering me mm. and having this intense theological discussion with me because you know my brain loves that. Mm-hmm. When I when I encountered Jesus, the whole series was on sermon encounters or, or experiences, encounters with Jesus. He doesn't see me as a victim when mm-hmm. I walk forward. Yeah. He sees me as someone who can have an intellectual theological conversation mm-hmm. with. And even though I don't think people see me as a victim any, at, at all, I see me mm. as a victim. Yeah. And I have to see me how God sees me. And that's what was so impactful for me. And the danger is the flip side of that is God doesn't want me to have problems. So it's my fault if I still have problems mm. with this. It is my problem that I have to bear so that I can encounter Jesus and sin no more. But in the context that you told the story in, Jesus approached her differently. He he told her, I see your messy life. What he did not do was condemn her for it. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, and that's that's mm-hmm. part of part of I think we were talking about this a little bit ago, is that part of what the interpretation that the traditional interpretation has been has been like Jesus saw her life and revealed herself to herself. Mm-hmm. That's not ex- at all what's happening. No. Her life experiences were so unique, so different, that when Jesus came to her, first of all, you know, the first thing he did was he asked her for something. Oh my gosh, can you imagine Jesus who can turn water into wine. We just saw two chapters before Jesus who could turn water into wine. Ask this woman, he descended below her to ask her for something to sustain him. It gives her dignity. So much dignity. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like it on the outside. It seems like he's asking her to serve him, but really what he's saying is, could you provide something that sustains my very life? Are you kidding? Like, that's amazing. And you know, the next time that we see in the book of John, when Jesus says, I'm thirsty, he's on a cross. And do you know what they give him? Sour wine. Like they don't, the people who should have known who he was and who should have helped him, like who should have been serving him, who should have been worshiping him. Like they didn't give something that would sustain his life. Instead, they gave him something that was like more punishment. They just heaped it on him. And so like what we see in the scriptures is this woman was able to give him something. It's incredible to imagine that he would just say, could you give me a drink? Hmm. But not just that, but he starts this conversation with her by saying, could you give me a drink? I He reveals several things in that conversation. First of all, he reveals that she is a seeker because she says, she says in that conversation, she says, I know that when Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. What does that reveal about her heart? It reveals that she is oriented to looking for the coming of the Messiah. And so he reveals that she's a seeker. That's what he reveals to the audience. She's a seeker. So that's who he's having a conversation with. And then what does he do? He says, I am he. Then like all pretense is gone. I am he. Now, what does she need to know that he is telling her the truth? It's difficult because what, like, what would he do in that situation? Would he work some sort of amazing miracle? Would he do, like, what would he do for this particular woman who has such a unique experience in life? the f- the fact that she had been married five times is not 
it's not unheard of, you know, for people to be married two or three times in that day and age, but five times is pretty unique. And so the fact that he says to her, he says, go get your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. And that's not because she was trying to lie or obfuscate. She was telling the truth. She did not have a husband. And with this stranger at a well, what would you do? What would you go? Well, it's complicated. You see, first there was this one guy, but he died. And then, you know, like there's not this story that she would tell. She just told him the truth. I don't have a husband. And he says, you told the truth. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And he doesn't say that to reveal her shame to her. She knows this. Mm-hmm. He says it to reveal himself to her. He's revealing himself. He's not uncovering her and he's not a jerk. He's not out to say, here are all the things that you've done wrong in life, but I still love you anyway, baby. It's okay. Mm-hmm. He's but showing he's, empathy. He's yeah. meeting her with empathy. He's saying, I see you. I see all of this and I want to talk with you. Mm-hmm. So empathy and dignity at the same time, not condemnation, not I see you, gotcha, Yeah, but I'll forgive you and talk with you anyway. Yeah. You know, and that hits different, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you, you've probably encountered people who, when they approach you with dignity versus condescension, you might have the same conversation, but it hits different. Sure mm-hmm. does. Yeah. You know, one, one of the things that I notice is, um, when I have women in my office and they're sharing with me their stories that are very similar, probably to yours. One of the things that I notice is that whenever I say to them, I can imagine that when you were in that situation, you felt a lot of shame. I can imagine that you felt really alone. I can imagine that you, every time I bear witness to what could have been their experience, there's just something in that that is lifting to them. Like I don't, I can't fix their problems. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a therapist. I don't have, I can't give them tools. All I do is I approach with empathy and I bear witness to the pain and the sorrow and the suffering and say, I can imagine. And somehow that's healing Mm -hmm. when someone says, I see you, Mm -hmm. which is what Jesus was saying. I see you. Mm -hmm. I see you. Um, But to, to be able to say to her, I see you, like he said to Nathaniel under the tree, I saw you under the tree. Mm -hmm. And then Nathaniel had recognition and belief. Mm-hmm. So he says to her, I see your whole story, everything you've ever done. I, it's all laid before me. And so then she has revelation and belief. So then she is, she becomes what John chapter one is just who received him. He gave the right to become children of God. And so there we see, she has this experience where she becomes a child of God, even though she's a Samaritan woman. Christian women often receive this message that they need a husband or a man to qualify them for permission, for inclusion, for service, for leadership, or even for access to information. And this is reflected in how I've often heard Jesus' directive to that woman interpreted, the directive to go get your husband, like it was intended to invoke shame because she was not in her right place under the authority of a man. So What is harmful about these assumptions and this type of interpretation of the story? I think there's a, there's probably a lot of things. One thing that comes to mind though, is just as we're reading the scriptures, we're reading them for formation. And so if 
I read this as a, as a young woman, perhaps. Um, and I think that Jesus is doing this to reveal her shame and to reveal her lack of male headship or authority over her. Then, um, I can probably subtly tell myself the message that, um, that a, a male figure is required for a woman to have a place of service in the kingdom. For men reading this, they can tell themselves a similar story, right? They can say, look, this woman wasn't in her right place. And yet Jesus used her anyway. So they, so it can oftentimes be one of those, um, <laughs> you know, like when we hear the story of Deborah, it's often the characterized as the one-off like well because there weren't any other men who would be who would lead right then so god had to use a woman right mm-hmm. it wasn't like it's not like she's the leftover and not she, the chosen the, exactly exactly and so in place of in place of a male who would go to the community he used a woman instead because there wasn't you know so i i think um i think that that's what's harmful in that is it just shapes how we think about our roles um, and you know, I, I would say probably the mainstream evangelical church has, has done harm in this in a lot of ways, not every church, you know, I, I want to, I want to be really careful here whenever I talk about this, because I currently serve in a church where I got to preach a message like what I did. Mm-hmm. And I had really great conversations with men afterwards. And I serve with a lot of men who give women a lot of support. And and honestly, I wish I didn't have to talk about this anymore. I'm yeah. I'm kind of tired of it being necessary. I'm kind of tired of yeah. of having to continue to have this conversation. I I wish that it were so that yeah, that we didn't have to keep saying well, here's the value of women. Here's the value of women. But until it it sort of becomes a little, until we turn the tide, I'm willing to do it. But all that to say, the the harm comes, the harm comes in just how it's, it's giving us those subtle messages of, of what we think is good and proper and right. Mm -hmm. Um, But if we see Jesus as the ultimate subversive, what he's doing. And we recognize that the scriptures are, that the context, like the backdrop of the scriptures is patriarchy. Then in that context with that, with that setting, then we see Jesus come in and he's turning it all upside down. And so what we see is that this woman at the well becomes not just an evangelist, but the first evangelist. And she's the first one that has a response where she has an experience with the living God. And then she immediately goes and tells her community, which another is another reason why I, I think that that the passage is interpreted poorly in some, in some situations because she goes to her community and she doesn't have to say very much before they believe her. She had a lot of credibility. So she probably wasn't really this terrible woman who everyone thought poorly of. Right. So she immediately had, she had some relational, um, equity. Mm. They saw her maybe as someone who was wise or, or they trusted her testimony, which is, it's a big, that's a big thing. Let's just say that's a big thing for them to trust a testimony of a woman, but they trusted her enough that when she said, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did, come and see the man who told me my life story. Then they said, we believe you, we will come and see him. Mm. I, I think, you know, I think first of all, it's just good for women to hear 
other people say, if you've ever heard the message that you couldn't serve here because you weren't married or because your husband wasn't serving beside you, or you weren't filtering all of your serving and your teaching and all of that through another man, I think it's just freeing for women to hear, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That's what you've experienced. And I, that's not the heart of God. That's not the heart of Jesus towards you. Um, you're just uniquely appointed and gifted, and and we need your we need your voice in interpreting scriptures. You know, we need we need one another. I had a conversation with a really dear friend of mine several years ago, and he said he had been at church and he heard they were teaching about you know David and Bathsheba, and he heard for the very first time that Bathsheba was raped, and he and so humbly, I I love. I love him. He just said, you know, it never occurred to me that she was raped. And I said, that's so interesting because it never occurred to me that she wasn't. Mm. But what that taught me is we have to have each other as we interpret the scriptures. Like you need my, you need my perspective and I need yours. So as we're trying to reach for a faithful hermeneutic, we have to interpret the scriptures in community, which means that, you know, I have to have the freedom to kind of teach this, this alternate reading a, a, a little bit, but I also have to have the humility to listen to other people whenever they challenge me on it um, and have a conversation about it. I don't want to claim that this is the, the only way. It's not the only way this passage can be interpreted, but it definitely is a way where women are the winners. <laughs> Laura Seifert, in, which is your friend, yeah. <laughs> Laura Seifert was on season one. And one of the things that she said that literally her, her voice just popped into my mind, God's word will stand. Mm. God is not fragile. Yeah. And that's something that, uh, Beth Allison Barr says, God is not fragile. Mm -mm. We don't need to be concerned about protecting some interpretation of scripture. God's word will stand. Mm -hmm. God is not fragile. We don't need to worry about that protection or, or upsetting that, but, but by bringing our interpretation to the table and listening to other people's interpretations of, of the same scripture together, I think we can, we can push forward to a more whole view of scripture. Yeah, I agree. We happen to be talking about one particular lens and looking at women and scripture and, and, but, but I think that holds true for everything. I think it holds true for just different nationalities, different, even different cultures, you know, even within our, in our own nation, but we have, we have so many other cultures and, but hearing one another talk about the scriptures from their perspective, I think is really, really important. You know, I, I and probably the reason why we don't do that very much is I think two things come to mind right away. The first is like when we think that we're going to have to have a theological conversation with someone or have that conversation about the Bible with someone, what is the first thing we're like, oh my gosh, I might not know enough to have this conversation. So we avoid that conversation. The second thing I think is, you know, we just feel, we feel a little bit threatened sometimes by a different position. But I think as, as we have conversations and as we look at the scriptures with one another, and we read in community, um, I think what we begin to see is that God becomes bigger in our vision. We become a little more ambidextrous, able to hold things that typically would be in tension together. And, and then just the manifold greatness of God 
becomes more obvious to us. I mean, he, he becomes more glorious to me whenever I think, man, there's so much here that I just don't see and I can't see by myself. But whenever somebody else helps me see it, gosh, it's such a gift. You know, I think we've, we've experienced that too, a little bit, Kelly, um, being in Bible study together. I remember, I think we were studying through Genesis or Romans or something, but one of the things that struck me about that particular group is we had a great conversation and there were, there were women in different phases of life, different, you know, all kinds of different backgrounds. And, and every time we got together, somebody would say something that I just would be like, huh, I've never thought about that before, but those things stuck with me and, and they've changed, they've changed me and change how I read. Um, while you were talking, I was thinking about how all of these different perspectives and interpretations impact our view of God. Mm. And it kind of made me want to circle back to what we see about Jesus in this story Mm -hmm. and how he approached this woman. And when I was listening to your, your sermon, I, just started crying because I I realized something about Jesus that I had never realized before. What was that? And that was just the posture that he approached this woman with. It was so moving to me. And I realized, you know, I haven't heard this story talked about this way. I haven't heard Jesus talked about in this story this way. How many women would benefit from seeing this part of Jesus Mm. the way that I'm seeing this right now? So can you talk a little bit about Jesus' posture specifically as he approached this woman? And what does that mean for us as we look at who God is and as we think about emulating him in those ways as we approach other people. Mm, Sure. The best way that we can summarize his posture to her is gentle Mm -hmm. and loving. And because of that, as we look at him and see how he has interacted with her, how he's guided her in this conversation, and truly, I mean, he guides her in this conversation because he has a purpose for it, right? And his purpose isn't is is isn't just targeted to her. His purpose is for the whole community. I mean, she ends up bringing her whole community to Jesus. But I but I think as we're talking about how to emulate him. I think the thing that comes to mind, the question that I want to ask in every interaction that I have with people is what is the way of love? I want to be gentle with people that I have a conversation with. I don't, but, but, but gentleness looks different for everyone, right? I mean, I kind of, I'm kind of loud. I kind of have, I like to laugh a lot. I, so, so gentleness for me looks a different way than it might look for you, Sarah. I mean, I, I, you and I, obviously, I think people can tell on this podcast, I talk faster you know? So gentleness is going to look a little different for me, but it's still going to be a posture that I approach people with. And But at always asking the question, what is the way of love? I don't really want to be like someone who approaches you. And then in my mind, just like I have this heads up screen that has all of your statistics running as I'm just making all of these snap judgments about you. You know, you're adorable, you're petite, you're soft-spoken, you're, you know, like where I'm just getting statistics Mm -hmm. about you, but like, what is it that makes you tick? How can I um, approach you in a way that you find is gentle and loving? Mm -hmm. That's the other thing too, is that, I mean, it's kind of a both and, but, but I think, yeah, in terms of his posture and what we emulate, it's what's the way of love. Yeah. What other truths are actually in the text that we may not have picked up on before? Well, the the truths that are in the text are really have more to do about who Jesus is. This is an I am statement. 
about we just uh, assume a lot based on the fact that she was at the well at noon. Doesn't really tell us anything about her personality or anything like that. We assume a lot whenever we say she's had five husbands and the husband she has now isn't isn't really her or the man she has now isn't really her husband. But those are just facts about her. So we we can just look at those things and say that those are truths about her. The other thing that is true about her is that she she's a woman who's willing to uh that she's a woman who's seeking when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. He will lead us into all truth. And she's a woman who's willing to tell whenever she you know she's she's a truth teller. So she tells the truth to Jesus. He doesn't condemn her. That's another thing that's there, right? I mean, he like when other people have have been in front of him and he's either said, um, your sins are forgiven or go and send no more. There's no judgment, moral judgment that he's put on her in this situation. Instead, she runs back. She leaves her jar of water and she runs back to the town and she takes them what she really has. Right. So she went to the well, she went for water, uh, but she goes back to her town. And because Jesus says from her will flow streams of living water. And so she goes back to her town, consider like a river flowing to flowing to the inhabitants of that city. And she comes to them with the thing that will really sustain them and give them new life. So she goes to them and tells them the good news of Jesus and they come and they hear it for himself and they drink of him himself. So those are the truths that we see there. There's more to unpack too. I mean, I, I would welcome anyone who's listening to study through those things. Look at why, what it, what is the particular context of Jacob's well? What is the particular context of a woman at the well? What is, so all of these things just, just, maybe do an investigation on your own and and honestly come to an interpretation of of this passage yourself you may come to the interpretation that she actually is a woman who's made a lot of poor life choices and 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 if you do we can still live at peace wendy if people want to engage with you more hear more about things that you are doing in your teachings where should they go when i have time to write i blog at wendyscott.net my sermons and things like that recorded sermons you can find on our church website which is antiochhouston.com awesome thank you so much for being on the all at once podcast my friend Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. How would you pick up the broken pieces of existence and teach me my part in it to show how you bring back to life all the beauty Before you go, if you like what you hear, please consider contributing to our podcast via Patreon, which is a monthly giving platform for creators like us visit the show notes for details or our website at allatonce.us. Sarah and I also want to recognize the All at Once team who works tirelessly alongside us. Robin Boren is our marketing director. Molly Bays is our social media manager. Taylor Diggs, our intern. And Maddie Reyna, who designed all of our podcast logos. A special thanks goes out to Alita Caldwell, owner of Funky Monkey, a boutique and shop in our hometown who loaned us a professional podcast space, which helped make our lives easier and more balanced and also exponentially elevated the quality of the podcast. There are two more people I have to shout out before you stop listening to this episode, and that is Larry's Designs and Friendswood. They sponsor us. They're a great little boutique here in Friendswood. Check them out. Super cute stuff. And lastly, and probably one of the coolest people that I need to talk about is Kate Short. She wrote the music you hear in response to season one, 
and her voice is beautiful. She's an up-and-coming artist. Check out her hit single, 2 a.m., wherever you listen to your music. Thanks for listening. While the world keeps on taking fun, so